This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good morning and welcome. Um, I'm Aileen Donnersberger, the Department Chair of Social Science, as well as an instructor of education here at Moraine Valley. I'd like to welcome all of you here, and I'm so happy that you could make it. Today we have a great honor. We have Barb Tobias here from the Autism Society of Illinois who is going to speak and share her experiences with all of you. Gail Ditchman, who is also an um, instructor of education here at Moraine Valley, was kind enough to contact Barb and set this event up. So I turn the podium over to Gail to give a little introduction um, to what you will hear this afternoon or this morning um, and welcome. Good morning. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce Barbara Tobias. Barb is the Information and Referral Coordinator for the Autism Society of Illinois. I have to tell you that when I first talked to Barb mm, eight, nine weeks ago, she said to me, and we talked about the presentation, she said, are you sure you want me to do this? I'm just a parent. Well, I have to tell you that in the last several weeks, Barb is far more than just a parent. True, she does have two sons, one who is highly impacted with autism. In addition, Barb holds a Bachelor of Science in Education degree with certification in bilingual education as well as English as a Second Language. Barb taught a fourth grade bilingual immersion class as well as a bilingual resource class. She has adapted materials and curriculum and taught an inclusion class in her church. She is very active in her PTA for children with special needs and she has created and oversees a program for her son at home to work not only on his education, his recreational, but all of his different therapies. As a parent of an autistic child, both Barb and her husband work extremely hard to ensure the quality of life for her son as well as for her family. She strongly believes that all children, no matter what disability, have the right not only to work but to recreate and to enjoy life in their communities as long as their disabilities allow them to. Her presentation today, Autism Spectrum, The Gifts We Share, is founded on her belief that all of us, no matter those of us that have a disability or who do not, have something to give and something to share. It is just up to the rest of us to open our hearts and our minds and to listen. Please help me welcome Barbara Tobias. Thank you very much. It's just a very humbling introduction. Um, I really appreciate being given the opportunity to be here this morning to share with you a mother's story, a family story, and then also move on to information about autism today, what we know causes Um, what we know about how to identify it, and also what we know about how to teach a person with autism, what things we want to look for, and not only through the age of 22 up to the 22nd birthday, because that's a new law, um, but also across the lifespan, what we're planning for. So thank you very much. I want to let you know I'm going to be speaking from 9 to 11 around there, and then I'll take questions. So if you just jot your questions down, I'll be happy to answer them afterwards. I appreciate this. Um, I am um, a mom of a child with autism. He's highly impacted. Um, I started, how do I want to say this? I want to start by saying that I am also the Information Referral Coordinator at the Autism Society of Illinois, but I didn't look for that job. I didn't seek that job. The job found me. 
I, through frustration and duress with how difficult negotiating the, ad, the educational system for my son was, I just couldn't take the stress anymore. Raising a child with autism is a full-time job plus. There's often no sleep, requires one-on-one -on -one care, intervention, interaction every waking minute of the child's day. So the stress is tremendous, but I couldn't take it anymore and I thought, I've got to get out of this stuck place that I'm in. So instead of being trapped, I called the Autism Society of Illinois and said, I'd like to volunteer three hours a week. And of course they connected me right away with the executive director, Kimberly Maddox, who said, well, what are your skills? And I said, well, I don't really have any special skills. I'm a jack of all trades, master of none kind of person. Give me a task and I can do it. Um, but I'm really you know, drained from the things with my child and I'd like to help somewhere else. So I came in, I said, I'll give you Mondays, you know, three hours each time. And um, every week, uh, the second Monday I was there, she cornered me in the office and said, would you like a job? <laughs> and my reaction was, no, 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 you don't want me. And she said, what do you mean? Of course, I'd love to have you working with us. And I said, you don't want me because if my son gets sick, I can't be there. If my son has trouble with school, all our IEP meetings, all our advocacy meetings, all our therapist sessions, you don't, I can't be there. And she said, we're the Autism Society of Illinois. We understand. I can be flexible, and we'd love to have you on board. And the rest is history. So... Um, I am grateful for the Autism Society of Illinois. Not only did the Autism Society of Illinois help me, but it continues to help other, uh, other families. Our role at the Autism Society of Illinois is to provide through ag advocacy, education, and legislation to, um, to improve the quality of life for people affected by autism and their families, as well as profession professionals who are helping people with autism. <clears throat> okay. Enough about that. <clears throat> now I'm going to start with a mother's story. These are my three sons. Can you tell which one is, has autism? <clears throat> Can you tell who's affected by autism? Can you tell who's a friend who's taken on caring for and being a friend to both of my children? The one with dark hair is not my child. <laughs> Surprise. That's our, my oldest son, John's friend, Scott. Scott is now what I call my third son. John is the child in the middle. He's 14. He's a freshman in high school, and he and Scott are best friends. And William, the one who's clapping, looking away, having trouble standing up, kind of grimacing, definitely confused and anxious. That's William with autism. William is now nonverbal. He has trouble motor planning. He has a identic memory. Identic meaning he sees it, he remembers it. But if you move it around, he's got to relearn it. So the glass on the table, if it's moved to another space, 
he has to relearn where the glass is on the table. It's that basic. He has trouble motor planning to walk across a room. In his mind, he knows he wants to get across the room to get the glass of soy milk. But his body, his central nervous system, doesn't work for him. So he has to work all parts of his movements, all parts of his body, to try to get the right muscles to move to get him across the room. If you've seen a person with autism, you may see, not all of them, but some of them, one of the things that makes them noticeable in public is some unique movement as they walk through space. William looks like a bass drummer in a band when he walks across the room. You know the ones that are marching like this? William is clapping and he is rocking. Now that is all effort at excessive energy being used to just get across the room. Other people think that he's not thinking because he moves that way. Fortunately, we know that he's thinking. His body just is not working right for him. Not in the same way as a person who has um, cerebral palsy or another kind of um, physical disability. I start with this picture because I don't have many pictures of William as a baby or as a young child. Because there wasn't time for pictures. I was trying to keep him alive. I thought he was going to die. Little did I know I was right. <clears throat> when William was born in August of 1995, and that's an important date, I share that with you because the 1993 started the explosion of autism. So when our children age out from 1993 to adulthood, our society is not prepared for what we're going to do with our adults who are on the spectrum, who although have many skills, require a lot of modifications in order to succeed in school and in work and taking care of themselves. So 1995 is an important year because 93 to 96, 97 were the largest number that were where we had a huge explosion at once. So I share that with you for that reason. Um, I was thrilled to be a mom a second time. John was a wonderful baby, so I just thought this was going to be great. I knew I would have my challenges because they always say you're not really a mom when you have one, you're just plain mom. And when you have two, you're really a mom because you're outnumbered. Well, that was true, except that William didn't sleep longer than 45 minutes to an hour and a half at a time and then would be awake for an hour to two hours every night for the first two to two and a half years of his life. And when he was awake, he wasn't restful. He was screaming. He was crying. He was thrashing. He was inconsolable. So we took that as, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Took him in, talked talk to the pediatrician, because you know you go into the pediatrician so often when they're newborns. And they would say, oh, it's just colic, it's just colic. Well, colic turned into ear infections at six weeks old. Ear infections, which caused him to go on antibiotics. And antibiotics is an important thing for your notes on causes and relationships to autism. 
He was on antibiotics from six weeks old till he was nine months old when we cho chose to have tubes put in his ears because he had nonstop ear infections. I was at the doctor's office once a week, once every two weeks because we'd get over one immune problem and we'd start with something else. So he was definitely not an easy baby. Um, imagine not even be able to handle an environment like this for a person with some people with autism. For my son William to go into a grocery store where even as an infant just walking in the grocery store and the lights would change, you know, you'd walk in the door, lights change, sounds change, that would set him off. He would throw himself in my arms and thrash and scream and scream and scream. And I was lugging, you know, a two and a half year old with me as well. So it was very, very difficult. I really want to lay for you the groundwork of how autism is a disability that requires all of a person's energy. Okay. So we go into the store, I'd have to go get the antibiotics right? Once a week, once every two weeks. As soon as one would wear off, we'd be back in. As I dreaded going into the pharmacy. Of course, they didn't have drive throughs then. <laughs> and um, so that was very challenging. Even feeding him with a bottle or nursing him, if the, the sun, if a cloud passed in the sky and the light in the room changed, that would set him off. He was so hypersensitive visually that that would stop him from feeding. And though he might be hungry, he couldn't take care of his own needs because he was sensorily overwhelmed. My poor older son, John, would have to sit still and watch a movie. And I would, he watched Mary Poppins, and if you've watched Mary Poppins, you know it's a long, long, long movie. And it's not very exciting by today's standards at all. But boy, it was long and calm. And that was the only video he could watch for six months while Will was up because it was the only way I could feed William. Then we resorted to, once Will started getting in a high chair, we resorted to having my son, John, and my husband wrestle and be very, very animated in the other room so it would distract William while I fed him. So we tried every trick in the book. I took him to the pediatrician saying, something's wrong, something's wrong. And they would say, no, no, he's fine. I'd wake him up from, he'd get up from a nap and his limbs would be blue. I'd call the pediatrician, they'd say, oh, that's baby blue, don't worry about it. Um, he would, I would be carrying him and all of a sudden he would throw his head back. And they would say, oh, that's just reflexes, don't worry about it. So I kept being told, don't worry about it. Well, at five, between five and six months old, he was sitting in his, uh, in his high chair. He was trying to reach over for something on, his, on the left side of the tray. And what he ended up doing was, instead of reaching with his left, he, and instead of crossing over with his right, which is crossing midline, an important thing, crossing midline he did not do. He literally turned around in his high chair to reach with his right hand. He had no awareness of the left side of his body. So what we know in autism is that sometimes the both sides of the brain are not communicating, so you don't have bilateral functioning. <clears throat> that's one issue. Or it's over-communicating. One side shuts down. That's another piece of the puzzle. So what did I know? Well, I was a teacher. <laughs> I was 
I volunteered at a special ed center when I was in high school. I volunteered at a special ed center when I was in college. I got what was important. I knew early intervention was key. So I ignored the doctor. I went ahead and um, and I went ahead and called the early intervention people. They came out. They said, do you always have to do this? And I said, yes. The only thing that would calm my son when he would start crying is you put I put my hand um, in between his two shoulder blades. I couldn't move them. I just had to hold them calmly. If I had any movement, he would lose it. Um, The other way I got him to sleep, my husband and I, we would take turns driving on the expressway in the middle of the night because the constant movement of the vehicle worked. Stop lights, stop signs, that would set him off. He couldn't, very often couldn't sleep at home, so we'd go in the car and drive. I had the... um, the shift until 11 to 1 or 2 in the morning, my husband would take over between 2 and 3 and stay, take care of him those hours because I needed that chunk of sleep. He needed that chunk of sleep. What I'm telling you is somewhat common in autism. So my story is not unique, unfortunately. Also, what we would do is we put him in the car seat, put him on the dryer in the laundry room, and put the dryer on fluff. We called it the fluff treatment. And I would sit on the floor trying to sleep sitting up, holding on to the car seat because I was so worried that he would fall while I was asleep, but that was the only way to get him to sleep. Or we used the one bathroom that had a fan without a light, and we'd close the door with the fan on, put him in his car seat, and just sit. And I would literally have to sit on the toilet seat with him on the floor, and one foot I would be rocking while I was trying to sit, sleep sitting up. This was because my child couldn't take in the world. He couldn't regulate his body. He couldn't regulate his needs. Common in autism. So I called early intervention. They said, speech, OT, occupational therapy, you need all of it. Great, I'm there. Two times a week, three times a week. In those days, they didn't come to your home. You had to drive there. So our life became driving. Not really a good thing for a baby, but that's because you're just always driving. But we made it work. Then um, he still wasn't making progress, and, and we felt that we needed to see a neurologist. I talked to my pediatrician about getting a referral for a neurologist for insurance purposes, and he said, and I quote, and I will never forget, you're nuts. Very nicely, but still the same. I said, well, let's let the neurologist tell me I'm nuts because I can't live this way anymore. It's no way to raise my two-and-a-half-year-old than three-year-old. And if they can tell me how to mother my child, let them tell me. I'll do anything. So he wrote a referral reluctantly. We saw a neurologist by the time my son was 14 months old. When Will was 14 months old, they diagnosed him as having had a stroke in utero because of the bilateral issues. But it wasn't well-founded. We did MRIs. CAT scans and an EEG to test for seizures. He showed some abnormal EEG activity or seizure activity. Didn't show seizures, but it, what, that's what it means when you have an abnormal EEG is that it means that you have the potential for having seizures. It just isn't showing up now. An EEG is like taking a snapshot, a photo. It's of the brain at that moment. So it doesn't show seizures at different times. So so they said, the doctor said, you're, the neurologist said, you're doing everything right, just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Okay, 
I'm gay. I was the hare in the race. I am going to hurry, 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 fix them, fix them, fix them. I'll do anything it takes to help my child be healthy and have a good future. Well, it worked. William made remarkable progress. He was eventually diagnosed with PDD-NOS, and if you know that, that's the highest level on the spectrum of autism, and I'll describe that later. It stands for Pervasive Developmental Disorder, none otherwise specified, which means we know nothing else. We just don't know why he's this way. So, so what we did was um, we did all intervention. I set up a home program. I hired girls and um, young men from my neighborhood, from the um, junior college near my home. Uh, from church to come in and do a home program of therapy intervention with William. He made tremendous progress. His articulation was poor. He, he still had sleep problems. He would either be super revved up or super under revved, and yet he was making great gains. By the age of five, he was speaking, you know, 18-word sentences, clauses, using actually and absolutely, and, well, if you think you know that, I would like to tell you. He was Mr. Professor type. Um, he could tell jokes. The funniest story I love about William is um, before he could talk at around two, he, John and his buddies were telling knock-knock jokes at the lunch, at, during lunch at my house. And William wanted to get in on it. So William just stood up on his chair, leaned over on the table and said, ah, ah. And everyone turned and said, who's there? And then he pointed to his brother. And we all said, John, John who? And then he pointed to a glass of milk. John Milk? And with that, he burst into laughter. Like, I told a joke. So he had the pragmatics of the language. He had the concept of it. He had the concept of the joke. He had the concept of the pieces and the parts. He couldn't output it. So he used his nonverbal cues and what he could with vocalizing to communicate it. I think that's a really good clue about working with someone with autism is watch for those more subtle skills and talents that people on the spectrum have to navigate their world and to learn in the world. So, so we made great progress. By the age of five and a half, they were saying, he's doing great, but you know, we noticed he's two days on and then a day off, and he has something one day, and then he loses it. And I said, well, this is what it's been like with Will forever. We move forward, we move back. We move forward, we move back, but we keep moving forward, so we're taking that game. Well, they said, you know, we really think you should check for seizures again. Well, we every year had them tested for seizures because 60, 60, 60, 60 percent of people with autism have seizures. That's huge. Only about 30 to 33 percent are diagnosed, are identified. That's a problem within a good time span. So, so we had been testing for seizures and we didn't find any. So they said it's time for another test. We got to check because he's still got this coming and going, and that seems like a seizure-related issue. So once again, we go back for testing, and they say this time, you know what? We saw some really strange blips. That means he's got all the markers for having seizures. So we are going to put him on seizure medicine because. The signs are there that he is having seizures somewhere, sometime, 
in the cycle of a 24-hour day. Okay, so we put him on medication, and when he went on the medication, he got really revved up. I mean, hyper, scary hyper, running out the front door, running down the street, um, you know, where you just couldn't reason with him. And he would look at you like, I can't help myself. I just got to go. And um, so he was just really getting, it became a safety issue. So I called them and they said, oh, that could be because the seizures have stopped. And because the seizures have stopped, now you're seeing his true person. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank you. I'm not sure I like this. Um, but I'm like, okay, we'll ride that wave. Then he got bit by a cat. And I, that's just, you know, it's one of those things. He followed a cat at someone's house and grabbed by the tail and it bit him. Okay, so a five-year-old thing that he should have done. Because, though, because cats, cat bites are very serious, he had to go on a strong antibiotic. So he went on the antibiotic. He got really bad diarrhea, got very lethargic, um, changed antibiotics three times until we got him over the hurdle. Then he got strep throat. And then he went on another antibiotic. <clears throat> By now it's July. By August, we had noticed that he was become, had become so much more lethargic. He wasn't verbalizing. He, he would walk five steps and then ask to be picked up. And this was at almost six years of age. Very strange. Um, and we weren't sure what to do about it. And then he had a generalized seizure. He was very revved up. I was trying to get him to sleep. My older son was playing outside with his friends. My husband was working um, his many jobs to pay for all of the therapies and the help that we had. And William looked at me, gave a very strange laugh, laid down, and then proceeded to have a seizure and stop breathing. He turned blue, I called 911, paramedics came and um, took him to the hospital. The neighbors, my son was outside, saw the trucks coming to our house and our neighbors who thought they were being helpful told my older son John, don't go in the house, you have to stay here. This is, this is what a, a nine-year-old was dealing with. Um, so. It was a very difficult time, and I was trying to manage saving my one child's life and protecting my other child. He, um, we went to the, they gave him oxygen. He came out of the seizures. They gave him um, some strong medications to stop the seizures. Then got into the hospital, and they said, you know what, he's fine. <laughs> Take him home. And I thought, I'm too scared take him home he almost died how did we know that he was even there wasn't brain damage he had been um, the seizure had lasted between five and seven minutes they say seizures if it's a full generalized seizure which is where you have convulsions you may have if you know anything about seizures it's where the body shakes um, they say five, you don't have to worry until 20 minutes. I mean, really worry about brain damage until 20 minutes. But after five minutes, you should call the paramedics to be safe. So that's the information even today that we have about seizures. So that was my initiation into epilepsy. <clears throat> 
with that, within three days, we'll have another generalized seizure, and then another, and another, and another. Um, the doctors changed medications. It was very complicated, and we couldn't uh, get a handle on the seizures. In that time period, William started talking less and less. He was dazed. Um, he lost control of his bladder and his bowels. So a boy who was toilet trained active, normal in that physiological aspect, I had to do the dreaded thing of going out and buying pull-ups for a six-year-old because it was incontrollable and not, and not stoppable. The other thing that was happening during that time is William was still talking, not much, but he would come up to me or turn to me, pull on my shirt, pleading. He would say, Mommy, what did I do wrong? Mommy, what does Grandpa say to me? I can't remember. Mommy, help me. Mommy, I don't remember. Mommy, help. And all I could say to him was, we are trying our hardest to help you. We are searching for a doctor who can find out what's wrong. It's not you. You're sick. And within six months, he lost all language. He lost all memory. He didn't know who we were. He didn't know his brother, who he always ran to the door and would sit yell, Johnny's home, Johnny's home, and would go give him a big hug, and John would pick him up, and then they'd wrestle. That stopped. John lost his brother. There was a person, but it wasn't who he knew. We were torn with the dr drama and the fear every night of was he going to live the next day because the seizures were so out of control. We were determined to find the answers to save him. In the meantime, I need to tell you this educational piece because it's important for students in education and working with special needs population is that if a child is in a medical state, medically fragile state, the school district cannot change the placement of the child. They can't change the class they're in or the program they're in unless everyone agrees that it's the right thing. Well, in the middle of all this, our school district decided that it was time to change his placement because they couldn't meet his needs well enough in that pro program. The problem as parents that we had was that these, this staff, the teacher, the, the aides, the speech therapist, occupational therapist, and the physical therapist had already been working with William for over a year. So they already knew him. He already had established relationships. Here's a child who's losing functioning, losing memory. We wanted to keep that circle of support wrapped around him while we were searching. So um, we didn't have the energy or the time to be negotiating with the school district. We were exhausted. So we contacted an attorney who said, you know, I'll help you. And uh, we called the school district because we had a very good working relationship with them. And we said, it's nothing personal. 
but we have to have an attorney because we need someone to navigate Will's educational system plan while we are navigating his medical system. And um, $12,000 later, six months later, he was able to stay in the same classroom. That's what families deal with when you have a complex special needs child and the school district has a different view than the family about what is right. So the money that we could have spent on Will's medical care went to holding his placement. <coughs> That's our favorite place, vacation. That is uh, Eagle River in Lakes, on Lake Superior in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. When you look at that picture, this is William after surgery. What you, that story, even my son last night, John, because I showed him the PowerPoint, I wanted to see, he's like, well, there are, there, are there any pictures of me in this? Absolutely. There is one I'll show you later where John had, John was not happy about the photo at all because he wasn't enough in the picture. You know, he's a freshman in high school, so he has a view on all of this. Um, what you see in this picture is, John's eyes are closed and he's smiling and I always think the, the eyes close is a, him trying, I'm being happy for my family but I really don't want to live with what's happening. William, not only is he distracted, but my poor husband is literally trying to stop him from running in the water. Um, most people who die from autism before age, age related die from drowning. People with autism tend to be drawn to water. So if you know someone with autism, one of the first things you'll want to know is where do they tend to like to go for safety reasons. Drowning is the highest cause of death besides um, other medical complications. And so there's my husband trying to look happy and hold Will for safety. And boy, darn it, we're having a good time on vacation, aren't we? Uh, and I am holding our really goofy dog, Bella, um, who, by the way, can tell when Will's having a seizure. Um, the first time I knew that, we got her as a puppy, and she's a Labradoodle. We have allergy issues, and we are trying to find the right dog for our family. And Bella is one of those dogs that, um, she, as a puppy, William was, I couldn't find her one night, and she never went in Will's room. She always went in John's room because the deal was John would get to, let, get to have her in his room because that would make it special. Well, what happened was one night I couldn't find her, and John couldn't find her. We looked. She was on the floor sleeping right in front of Will's bed. And with that, within a minute, Will had a seizure as I walked in. Like, what are you doing? And then all of a sudden I see he's starting to go into seizures. So she's also went and got me while Will was in the shower because um, she says he was going to have a seizure. She got off the bed, came and got me, kept, you know, come on, you know, they, I want to go out. They give you that look. She was like, come on, we got to go in the bathroom. I'm like, oh, you're right, it is time. Who needs to get out? It's been in there six minutes. That's plenty. And um, I go in there, and he's literally just holding himself up against the wall. And with that, he fell into my arms, had generalized seizure, stopped breathing, had to call the paramedics. So, um, so that picture tells another story. So what happened with William then, we had all of these seizures, we had all of these challenges, um, we had to ch deal with the school placement. What ended up happening after that was medically we found 
um, epileptologist, neurologist who specializes in seizures at University of Chicago, who said, I get him, I know what's going on. Uh, they were able to find where the seizures were taking place, uh, um, found that he was a good candidate for having brain surgery, where you take out the part of the brain that is having this, this, the seizure activity that's starting, so they call the focal site, which is the beginning place of the seizure activity. So they opened up his brain, put electrical grids and internal EEG in his brain and had the cables running out behind the back of his head, outside of his brain for two weeks in um, Pete's ICU. That was not fun. That was a horrible decision to make as a parent to put your child through that. But needless to say, we were trying to stop the seizures. We wanted to improve his quality of life. So we did it. When they got through two weeks, they said, we have bad news. It's showing that the focal is deep-seated in an inoperable place in the brain. So technology isn't there yet, but it's going to get there where we'll be able to do something about it. But right now it's not there. So after two weeks of that, they decided that he was a good candidate for a vagal nerve stimulator implant, which is where you, there's a, it's a computer you may have heard about. It's been in the media quite a bit recently. Um, it's a little computer. Goes in under his skin behind his left shoulder blade, has a wire that runs under the skin up to his vagus nerve, which is here, and it's got a copper coil that wraps around the, the, vagus, uh, the, um, yeah, the vagus nerves to um, stimulate the brain. The idea is that the electricity will retrain the brain to run on a regular path more normally and stop the seizure activity. So when you have a seizure, all the electricity is running at once. Okay, it's not sparking and doing the things it should be doing all over. And so um, the, his vagus nerve right now goes off every 30 seconds for 30 seconds, and then it's off for 30 seconds. So 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. And it's at a certain amperage, and you can set that. They have this great computer, a laptop, and a little wand, and they go up to his back, and they check the setting. They're like, okay, well, you're doing great. Mr. Tobias, do you want to try? I'm like, ah! You know, I don't want to break him. I don't want to mess with it. Um, but they check it and change the settings depending on what's happening with the seizure activity. He's now had that implanted for, um, what, seven, five years, and um, it has stopped mostly the major seizures. So another piece of this puzzle is that, um, is that once you have all of this going on, what happens with your educational plan? Well, Will is, went into a self-contained classroom instead of being in a more of an inclusion environment. The better place for Will was a more sheltered environment with less going on so that it would facilitate his memory and his need for assistance. And um, so here's Will with levels of assistance. This is him playing buddy baseball. If you ever want to do something fun, go watch a buddy baseball game or volunteer to be a best buddy. This man here, his name is Mark, um, who's helping William. He is actually a paramedic for Buffalo Grove Fire Department, and um, he volunteered to um, help Will play baseball. The man on the right, his name is Rick. He is one of the dads. Um, who helps coach the teams. And uh, Buddy Baseball is one of those um, very great things. Will watched his brother John play baseball all these years, and I turned to him one day and I said, Will, I found a baseball team for you. Would you like to play? And although he couldn't say it, he smiled, laughed, and looked at me and clapped. So I knew that it was the right thing to do. So he loves Buddy Baseball. 
Okay, this is the picture John's complaining about. See, there's no John except for his limbs. That's the first day of school. Now, here's the, the issue. John didn't want a picture with Will clapping. He's holding his arms. As a brother, as a sibling, sometimes the disability, what manifests itself, is upsetting and invading to the sibling. All right, there's a little glimmer of Will connecting there. You can see a little bit of spark in the eye there. That's a really good sign. Overwhelmed. But this man, Mark, was so nice. when Will was, It was a really hot day in this picture. And Mark is out there. He didn't even know Will had seizures. And he's like this, trying to protect Will from the sun. He's making himself a huge shade umbrella for Will. So Will was down here and he's shading him. And um, come back and Will had two seizures that, during that game. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things with Will's vagal nerve stimulators, we have a specialized magnet that we use to run down the back of the VNS whenever he's having a seizure and it sends an extra strong energy electrical energy to his um, system to stop the seizures. If you catch it on time you can stop it and if you do it enough you can stop it. Only after four hours of swiping is it harmful to the person. We never do four hours. We'd be in the hospital. Okay, This is also another good picture of William. This is um, at a concert that was hosted so nicely by um, North Central uh, Community College Concert Band, they uh, did a, a concert just for kids with special needs so that you could dance in the aisle, and William was dancing in the aisle, and he also runs up and down the aisle. We have this problem that when Will's really excited, he has to run off the excitement. That's another important thing to know about people on the spectrum. They can't regulate the emotion, and they can't say, I'm excited. Even if they're verbal, they may not be able to articulate the feeling where we could talk about it. You know, you get on the phone with your girlfriend, blah, 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 blah. you tell them that, or you go, you know, yuck it up with the guys, or you go play sports, you go do something, shoot hoops, that's what my son likes to do. Um, and Will doesn't have a way to do that, so he has to find another way to do it. So he runs it off, and you can literally see him run off the energy. And then he slows down, takes a big sigh, and then he turns back and then starts coming back. Temple Grandin shares a great, uh, she's a, a woman, a, a college professor with autism, who uh, can describe how it feels. And she describes it really well, which made really good sense to me when I was trying to figure out what Will was doing. She says, people with autism take snapshots. They see things visually in one shot, then another, then another. Now, this isn't everybody, but this is most people with autism. And it made so much sense to me because William, when we get out of the van uh, in a parking lot, he'd get out of the van, he'd take so many steps away from the van, and every single time he turns around, looks back, looks back where the van is, then looks this way, this way, this way, this way. Like, okay, he's taking a visual memory of where he is. And then he walks farther, and then he does another look back. So he uses his visual memory as his means of um, taking in the world in a lot of ways. Very common in autism. Um, he's clapping. The, I, 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 I like that picture also with his eyes closed because it shows how he can't time it right. And I need you to know that there is a time when I tore up every picture that wasn't a beautiful picture of William because I was trying to hide his autism. Now, every picture of William is a beautiful picture because he is beautiful. Once, one of the things that families deal with is the trying to fix our child syndrome. Um, and 
we're try we get this message that our child is not okay the way they are and that we're just going to help them be the best they can be the way they are. We want to fix them. That's why you have early intervention. That's why you have early, um, you go to therapies, you see specialists. All of those are valid. But as a parent, we're dealing with the reality that our plan in our life is different than what we had. That what's happening is different than the plan. And there's shame and fear and embarrassment and unknown and lots of pride and confusion. So we're not always sure what to do. So this picture shows Will being who he is, enjoying what he loves, which is music, and certainly got his timing, well, the blinking and the smile are off. But his clapping, he actually claps to the beat of just about everything. I think he beat, claps to his heartbeat also. He claps all the time. Okay, so this gets me to the juggling act behind the scenes. Um, this is what parents are dealing with inconsolable baby. Many children with autism have had ear infections, also have digestive problems. Um, they think there's a link between antibiotics and the digestive problems. I'll explain that a little bit later. Um, calling, searching for help, searching for information. No sleep, little sleep. Uh, the dreaded outings, we always called them. Oh my God, we've been invited somewhere. Most people get excited. We dreaded it because how are we going to manage that environment? William might tolerate the situation well, but as soon as we left, he would be so overstimulated that he couldn't function. Common. People's comments, people's looks. John would say, Mom, there's someone looking at me. Can I go and punch them? No, you can't. I said, just remember, they don't understand. They're curious. Maybe they care about us. Maybe they want to help. Maybe they don't know what to do. Maybe they just don't understand. So we need to show them how to behave. Well, we actually, I got such a, um, a learning lesson from Barbara Doyle, and if you ever have a chance to hear her speak, um, she has some videos and some books out too, but she lives in Springfield, Illinois. And uh, she has a nephew with autism, and she's a strong advocate about how to live with autism and what we need to do as a society and as individuals for helping people with autism. And one of the things that she says that is so powerful is every time a parent goes out with their child with special needs, this is an opportunity to model for other people how to treat someone with special needs, how to interact with someone with special needs. And so if I'm really having a bad day, we don't go out because I'm not up for modeling. Um, so if I'm in the mood, I know I can handle it, then that's great. But some days are so, so hard that um, parents get moved beyond their limits. And a lot of times, for you all to know, parents also can be exhausted if so exhausted that one more meeting, one more time to tell their story can be one time too many. It's nothing personal, but it can be one time too many. All right, this is uh, Will's OT working with him, and you can see he's holding his head. This is him turning. He's folding his ear. It's a sensory thing to help him hear things better. He does not have hearing problems, and he's chewing on a cup. Always, He's always chewing. Chewing is a, um, is a strong input for organizing your body, so if you're feeling disorganized, be sure to chew gum. Um, but that you'll also see, that's another thing that you can be watching for. This is Big Mike. He's a special ed teacher from California who fell in love with an OT in Chicago and moved out here. Loves working with kids. He's a surfer. Um, this is one of the rare times he's actually in jeans. He's almost always in surfer shorts and sandals. And um, he's a developmental therapist who comes to the house twice a week for an hour each time and works with Will to do things. One of the things that Mike has taught Will is to rollerblade, 
scooter down the big hill of my street. No helmet, no knee pads, but that's another story. Sometimes I can't even watch. I'm like, is this the time I can come and look, Mike, or is this the time I shouldn't see? Oh, no, Mom, you don't want to be there, he says. Right, Will, we don't want Mom there today. Um, he also has taught Will how to ride on John's bike on the pegs, how to stand on the pegs. You would not, oh, I wish I had that photo. Um, I have to find that photo for somebody sometime because that's just a keeper. There's John. We, I ran and got the camera, and it wasn't Will who was beaming. It was John because he got to do something typical with his brother, and he's not, he doesn't have a lot of typical experiences. Okay, this is, this is on vacation, our favorite place. Um, here's William trying to organize. The, he is literally kind of picking his lip. Picking your lip is a sign of either having an aura, a seizure, or sensory. So aura is a precursor to a seizure, potential seizure. Um, and they, um, picking the lip also can be a sensory soothing and organizing activity. But this is amazing because Will was actually able to um, get his eyes at the camera, but I can tell you why. He's leaning up against his brother. His head has input. His whole back of his body has input. His brother, John, is leaning up against the fence rail of the deck there off of the, the cabin um, lot. Uh, so Will has enough input to the rest of his body so that he can organize his visual system to be able to look in the right direction. So often you don't get eye t contact from a person with autism. Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. One of them is the motor planning. They don't have enough input to the rest of their body to organize that system to visually attend. Another possible reason is the hypersensitivity visually. William is hypersensitive visually. People have often said to us he cannot read. But when we started getting him evaluated, they were stunned. He uses his peripheral vision to do most of his tasks. Now, is it efficient? No. Is it going to help him when he's older? No. It's a problem because you need your central vision to pay full attention to get all the information you need. So we work with William to, in a relaxed setting to work on central vision and focus. Um, but we have to literally talk about the things that we don't otherwise have to talk about with other people. Okay, this is another good picture of William. This is him. He's actually damaged his teeth and his lips from seeking input in the oral area so much. Um, and so that's a good picture. Okay. Now, let me go into this piece. I let, this is, um, my husband looked at this and said, oh, I can't take this. I've got to leave. These are, this is just paperwork on William that needs to be filed just in the last two months. That's therapies, medical bills, insurance statements, and um, school records. This is our home program. This is the cabinets, the cabinets, the chair, and the file cabinet that we have all of Will's home program materials where people come into the house and we work with them on different skills. Everything needs to be adapted for William, so we have to create it or adapt it, and we have to have it so we can get it easily at hand. That's my living room. This is just Will's drawer in the filing cabinet. This is just the last. Um, these are medical records. Um, educational records and legal documents. That last binder at the end is just one binder of Will's EEG records from one EEG setting. So I share this with you because I want you to know how complicated the family life can be. That a parent may come in appearing calm or 
you know, I, one parent said, one teacher said to me, after getting to know you, Barb, I now understand that I need to not, I need to be careful with parents because we don't realize all that you're going through. I'm just the one who's taking, um, you know, who's saying it. So records, it's, it's um, a daunting task. All right, here are more records for William. If you look all the way to the right, it says William Tobias Medical Records. That is just a case of an emergency. That is a, his emergency care plan. So when he has a seizure, we have to go to the hospital, we have to take that binder with us. That's not a thin binder. You should, but I have to tell you, it's really fun when the doctors are so impressed. I'm like, oh, finally, somebody likes what we're doing. Um, so that's really nice, but um, do you know the work involved in that? It's daunting. The good news is, is that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Illinois chapter of American Academy of Pediatrics have started many, many medical homes. And the focus of this medical home model is that you provide a, one place for care coordination for children, patients with special needs. And that has been a huge help in our life. Our children's practice has um, changed and created a medical home model. This is a grant program right now, so if you know of anyone, that would be great to share with the practice. Um, in the future, there, the plan is that all pediatricians and actually all doctors will have to have a medical home. Everyone has a medical home. It's a matter of how great is your home for providing care, your medical home. Okay, so that's important for you to know. And then, um, yeah, here we go. All right, so here's where families are coming from. This is an unintended journey. Didn't plan this trip. Fantasy versus reality. The fantasy was two healthy boys, work hard, play hard, reach our goals, and it's, we're still working hard, we're still playing hard, and we're still working on goals, but none of them were what we planned. And the reality of how we got there is not how we planned. So the parents are dealing with unfamiliar waters, unfamiliar territory, unforeseen dangers. You know, I wasn't prepared for William having seizures. And then I unexpected pleasures. You know, I was at a parent support group meeting once. My husband and I went, and, you know, they're going full round circle, the different parents, and the one mom says, her name is Lori, she said, I am so grateful to know all of you with my daughter having Downs. It's just been wonderful to meet so many special people. And I was just on my hands, couldn't contain myself. And I finally said, when it was my turn to talk, I said, I want you to know, I am not happy to know any of you, not for this reason. I, w I don't want to be here. I don't want to know you because my child has special needs. But now, ironically, I know most of those families and we get together on a regular basis. And, but it wasn't my dream. It wasn't what I wanted. And that's a painful piece that families are constantly dealing with. And then there are unlikely relationships. You find yourself, my favorite department in the school system, and let me tell you, I know all the departments in the school system, my favorite department is transportation. You know why? Because they are so good to my son. They come to the house, they take good care of him, they put him on the bus, they say hi, the bus driver counts how many blocks until they're going to be at our house. My son is giggly and happy, and he is happy to go to school. And they're the first person he sees that relates to school. Um, so I'm grateful for them, and they're unintended people who provide service to my child. Okay, this is the battle for the family. How did I get here? When will this journey end? You know, I used to be the hare in the race. Choo, 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 chug, chug, quick, quick. No, then I learned after Will got sick, it was much better to be the tortoise. 
slow and steady is good to be. And the thing you need to know is that families are balancing that. Sometimes you'll do, deal with a parent who is all revved up. Well, they may be revved up because they're balancing so much behind the scenes that when they get to that interaction with you, they're actually hurrying. I was just on the phone with Will's teacher yesterday morning, and she was saying, you know, we're talking about Will's seizures and what's going on, and then, and then the IEP meeting that's coming up in two weeks, and I'm going through details. I said, okay, thank you. Have a good day. And she's like, um, uh, uh, and I'm like, oh, she's trying to ask me one more question. But I'm in such a hurry. And the truth is, sometimes... I don't want to have to call that teacher. I don't want to talk about seizures anymore. I am so tired of this. I love my child, but I hate the disability. I hate what it requires of me. But I can't change my life. I can't change what's happening. I can change how I can handle it. I choose to be happy. Dr. Luke Sai is an excellent um, speaker, and he's written a couple of books. He is a psychiatrist at the University of Michigan who has an adult son with autism. He's a powerful speaker, very, very factual, lots of information, um, and he uh, also has great wisdom about what it's like to raise a, a child with special needs. Okay, so here we have our percentage of our day. Um, spent doing activities. This is what Dr. Luke Sai says, and I just love it. All right, well, if you look at this um, this pie chart, you can see that, all right, <clears throat> we have 33% of sleeping, and you got 2% for the bathroom, 4% for eating, 25% for school and school work, or work and, um, or school. Then you have 6% of your day is driving to and from or traveling, and then only 30% of the day is really the disability. It's the challenges that interfere with that day. So really, 70% of a person's life is normal. 30% is, only, is only part of the day disabled. So it's really in how you view it. And that, for me, was very powerful because we end up trying to fix the child through all the things we try to do. Of course, we want the best for them. We want them to have the most skills they can have. But... We want them to be able to lead a normal life as much as is possible. And I'm sorry, these pictures didn't turn out. The scanner went on black and white yesterday on me. Um, and you can see in this top picture, William is happy, but he's contained because he's going to run away because he's so happy. And John is trying to hold him. I'm so mad. I have to hold my brother and a smile. And then here, Will's totally in heaven because they buried him halfway in sand. So he's getting a lot of input. And he's like, <laughs> I love this. So we actually can have great quality time when Will's halfway buried in sand because he's getting the input and we're all doing something together. We're just, you know, packing Will in. Um, so so for as a family, who has gifts to share with the family? As a family, when you realize, okay, this is my day, this is my life, this is the direction we're going, I can navigate this ship, but how am I going to navigate it? And who's going to help me? Because I don't have all the tools. One thing... I had one specialist say, and this was in the early, uh, it was early intervention. She was the director, of, coordinator of the special, of uh, the early intervention program, and she said, Mrs. Tobias, I am the expert in William and what's best for William. And I said, no, I am the expert in what's best for William. You are the expert in early intervention. Let's be clear about that. And that's really important that parents will have turf wars over that. There's, that's going to set parents off. Or parents will back down and then be upset because it's not fair to them. So you want to 
be careful about that and where parents are coming from. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on behind the scenes with families that we're not aware of, as well as with the, the, the school staff and the educational staff as well. But it is important to, to, to address it. So we want to look at who, who is there to help. You know, we have neighbors who every September they call Jim calls on his way home from work. He says, I'm bringing you dinner. What do you want? Because fall is always hard for us. Will always has a hard time in the fall. When Will was four, he wouldn't go to sleep without his shoes and socks on. I mean, they never came off. It was really, and if, when they did, it was not pretty. Um, cashiers. You know, William is the, you know, our local Starbucks um, mascot on the weekend. Because every Saturday and Sunday morning, Starbucks is only two blocks away. I wish we got a discount. Um, but um, they, they're so lovely there. Uh, my husband and I, or my husband and Will, they walk up to Starbucks. William goes with his um, talker um, and orders what he wants, and then we give him his Starbucks card or money, and he has to pay. And they talk to him. They make conversation with him, and he can answer. But that's something regular, he do, regular that he does that contributes to him being part of his community, and the community is responding positively to him. Okay, so family feelings. Sometimes we feel like we're living in a fishbowl. And by the way, my husband was impressed that I could put the little eyeballs on the goldfish. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's got to have a really big eye because you're always watching what's happening. Who's watching us? And it is true. There are so many people trying to help us, and we were seeking so much help. And there's so much need for assistance and input and information, but... The problem with that is you feel that you lose your privacy. You know how many times I've told some of the horrible stories about what goes on in my house? Um, but the reason I do it and I remind myself is this is to help William. It's to help John. This is for a life plan for my children. But there is a loss of privacy. There's a sense of loss of direction. Even day to day, we don't know where we're going. My son's William seizures are overtly in the way of our life. Not all people with autism are the seizures in interfering so dramatically as Williams. He goes through periods of being fine. Right now he's at a difficult stage, but we'll get through it. We know more and we have appropriate assistance. Um, and there's this loss of autonomy. You know, when you get married, you get to create your own kingdom. Did you know that? You and your spouse get to create your own kingdom. And then your family all gets to come visit to your kingdom and your castle until you have a child with special needs. Then, is it, do you want people in or do you not want people in? Are you hiding from it because it's so dreadfully awful? It's so consuming. But the goal is to get help. So parents sacrifice autonomy to get the help they need. But sometimes parents have emotions that come out in other ways because they're dealing with the balancing act of loss of privacy, seeking privacy, and getting help. Then, I mean, this is truly how my family feels sometimes. Now, let me tell you, that dining table, I thought the Thanksgiving meal was very appropriate for the holidays, the little scene, but what you see here is a family trying to enjoy dining, but what happens is even people who come into my house who are so helpful sometimes say things that are hurtful. Not that they mean to, but they see things. You know, 
<laughs> the first time Mike started working with us, this is just so funny, I have to share this story. He, he starts working with us. He's this big, you know, the big burly guy. And um, he's been working with us for a while, and, you know, we're still getting used to having him come in the house and getting to know him, and we're still getting used to him. And Will, at that point, Will would only watch one video. And when he got home from school, that's what he wanted to do was watch this one video. And it was, can you believe it? I'm trying to remember what it was. It was Aristocats. Um, so he would sit down and watch his video, and then Mike would come in after school, and Mike would walk in front of the TV, and he would stand in front of it and turn off. He'd say, well, I'm here now. It's time for us to play. Well, you can imagine that didn't go over very well. William would get very, very upset, scream, just try to lunge at Mike, try to move him, and Mike would say, you know, I know you're mad, which is super, super important, um, validating the feelings. I know you're mad. It, one thing that we tend to do, which we need to really consciously work at, um, is validate the emotion that the child has and teach them ways to handle the emotion. We are so busy trying to help them with their motor planning skills, with their, you know, with their um, visual attending, with their word retrieval, with answering questions, all these other things that we're working on, that sometimes we forget that we need to teach them the emotion. You're mad. You don't want to do homework today, do you? I don't like to do laundry either, but we've got to do it. So let's get it done. And then we teach them ways to handle that. And we teach them that they will not break when they have that strong emotion. But sometimes what it takes to teach that can, be, can take a whole team of providers to do. So here was Will lunging at Mike, and Mike leans over, picks up a clean, uh, takes a tissue out of a box, turns around. He's not even paying attention to Will, who's, you know, charging him and bolting at him. And he takes the tissue and wipes the screen of the TV off, all the dust. I had inches of dust on it. And I looked at him, and I said, I'm sorry I haven't had time to dust. And he said, well, I like to work in a clean environment. <laughs> I don't have time to clean, is what I wanted to say. How dare you? You're in my house. It's not dirty. It's dusty. But, okay, so that was hurtful. Not meant to be hurtful, but he was trying to tell me something. Now, what I could have done was say, I'm done with you. I don't want to work with you. But I didn't. I said, okay, we got we got to find a way to clean the house more. Mike's coming, so we made it before. Mike came on Thursday, Wednesday night, once everybody dust and vacuum. Um, and you know what, that was good because it was a signal that, okay, maybe things need to get pulled back. On the other hand, um, Mike also at this point, he says to me, you know, you're the only family I work with that doesn't have a cleaning person. <laughs> it takes a lot of money to have people come in your house. And in our case, it takes all of our money to have people, but they're worth it. It takes a village to raise a child. It really does in our case. But what ends up happening is in everyone's efforts, the, the family does have, have the sense of loss. And these visuals, you know, you've got the people who are thinking, 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 and you're like, just make a decision. And you've got other people who are like, hmm, I need a closer look. And your family's maybe feeling like, please, please, come look, come look. Or are feeling like, can we stop now? Do you have enough? Haven't I told this story before? And then you've got the, the time on task person going, okay, we don't have much time. So you're getting right to the core of the issue that you're all trying to problem solve, and all of a sudden time's up. Parents are so frustrated. It costs a lot of money to have our private therapists be at meetings. And when we have, I had a meeting called um, in September, well-intentioned staff again, 
um, great goal, but I had to bring two of my private people with because they're the experts in this issue, and, um, and William, so I needed that help. And it cost me over $550 for an hour and a half meeting. Um, out of my pocket. It's not covered by insurance. This is another issue parents face is, do I pay to have ther therapy or do I stay within my budget? How many hours can I work? What can my family afford? My husband works three jobs. He makes a good living, but all of our money goes towards therapy, and I work as much as I can um, to pay our bills because once we decided what our life goal was, that's what we have to do to get there, and we're tired but happy to do it. So. Sometimes this is what you're dealing with. So be careful that you're, um, when you're working with families, you know, try to be careful about what might be going on behind the scenes. And families do feel sometimes that they're being judged when they shouldn't be. Um, parents are stressed and overloaded, and um, sometimes they're living the unspeakable. I mean, I know of a family that um, their child, when she has a bowel movement at night, she wipes the feces all over the wall in their house, in her bedroom. Um, people with autism can do some things that don't make sense to us. And so get up to the next day to start the day and you find out you are not only having to clean the child, you're having to reshower yourself after you clean and you have to call in to work because that has to be addressed. That's the stuff that really does happen. Some parents will not tell you that, and rightfully so. So there's parents' shame. Um, there's so many unknowns. We don't know what the future holds. There's so many unanswered questions. There's still so many questions about autism. So please be slow to pass judgment on, um, on families. Sometimes it might be that the parent actually needs respite care. In that case, if you have a family that you're concerned about, you call us and tell us, you know, I'm, I'm worried about this family, or you give that family our number. ASI, our, that's my job is to help parents get the help they need, whether it's respite care, someone comes in the house and gives the parents a break, or we get them the therapy or the medical care that the child needs to get them on the positive path to good health um, and toward the positive education. So there are gifts we share, each of us bring to the table for the sake of the child, whether we're the nurse, the doctor, the school teacher, the one-on-one -on -one aide, um, the parent and the sibling, we're all contributing. Sometimes we overlap in positive ways, sometimes we over, overlap in conflictual ways because we're coming at it from our areas of expertise. And so it takes communication. If there's one thing I've learned is not to assume. I ask a question, even if it seems obvious. I will say, did I hear you say, so are you telling me that? Is this what you want me to do, or would you please do this for me? And then get specifics. It takes extra time to deal with articulation. <laughs> this cracks me up. I'm like, it's in black and white, so it looks like we're, you know, in the mafia or something. You know, it's like all dark. Um, that was my parents' 50th wedding anniversary party. And um, that picture, you can see William is just uh, barely sitting up. He is so overstimulated that he's flopping. So he's leaning on me for support. So you can get the overstimulation that will actually cause the child to physically, the person to physically shut down, mentally shut down, or they can get so revved up. So um, in this picture, I was actually trying to have him not clap, or at least have, not to have his hands clapping in the one photo. And um, that took, a, that took a, I think, about 15 
pictures and breaks. We had to take breaks in between to get there. But again, this picture that looks nice, you've got to be wondering what's really going on behind the scenes to make it work. Um, and I was so impressed William wore a belt. He wore fancy shoes and he wore a tie. Can you imagine? Even my husband doesn't like to wear that. So, um, so sensory-wise, that was quite an accomplishment, and William kept that on all night. Okay, so let's move into pervasive developmental disorders. What are they? Well, you have what they call medically as pervasive developmental disorders. On the one end of the spectrum, um, you have autism spectrum disorder, which is, you know, that's most highly impacted, which would be my son William. And then you have Rett syndrome, which also call, falls under that, and disintegrative disorder, Asperger's syndrome, and um, some people say that um, Bill Gates um, of Microsoft is, um, has Asperger's. I don't know that, but that's what I've heard. So I use him as an example that um, there are a lot of, very brilliant people who have Asperger's who are high functioning and are doing having successful, um, very successful lives. And then there's something called PDD-NOS, and that's pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. So that means that we don't know enough information. Back to the Asperger's, I would like to say that you can have Asperger's and be more highly impacted where you have more trouble navigating your life. I get a lot of calls at um, the Autism Society of Illinois from parents um, for their teens who are very depressed um, or their college student who has Asperger's or their young adult 20s. So you've got your teens, 20s, and 30s. And what seems to happen is once they leave the, the school world, they go into, um, they, as, seeking, as they're seeking independence, there's this depression that sets in because they realize how much they have no, they don't have enough of another life of a fulfilling life, and they don't know how to navigate it. They don't understand um, what they're doing wrong. And so there are still so many supports needed for adults on the spectrum, not just in a work setting or educationally, but also especially social skills and affect, understanding themselves. Okay, so learn the signs act early. These are symptoms of autism. Um, we knew something was wrong right away with William. Eye contact was a problem, didn't like to be held. Um, you know, you go to cuddle your baby and he would, you know, like, like, oh, gross, you're touching me. That was very upsetting. And um, he was aloof. People would say, oh, he's so happy. And I'd say, oh, not until you leave, just until you leave, because he'd be overstimulated by people. So he would seem happy, but he was actually shutting down because he was overstimulated. So it appeared that he was fine, but then once the, over, the overstimulation stopped, then he couldn't balance it. He couldn't self-regulate, so then he would explode. Of course, language was different. As I said, the, the jokes, sharing the story. I won't go through all those details. I want to get to some of the other stuff um, that's really important. So autism spectrum disorders, you're hearing a lot about it, thank goodness. Um, the question is, is there an epidemic? Right now they're saying it's 1 in 150, um, but... In um, some areas of the country, it's down to 1 in 90. New Jersey, pockets of New Jersey, east side of Texas, um, some other areas have higher pockets of autism, uh, which is a curious finding. There is an issue, like in Wisconsin for a while, we were saying, oh, there's something in Wisconsin. Well, great services are in Wisconsin better than Illinois, so a lot of people were moving to Wisconsin. So it wasn't necessarily that Wisconsin had something environmental that was causing all of these autism births, 
but um, it actually has to do more with people moving to get better services because Wisconsin services are much better than Illinois. Illinois is the ninth richest state in the country, but we are 49th in providing services for people with developmental disabilities. That's why people move to Wisconsin. Wisconsin is 17th in the nation for providing services. Rhode Island's number one, in case you're... It always leads me to ask, who's number one? Um, and then in boys, it's about one in 80. Okay, boys are four times more likely to have autism. Another interesting... Oh, okay, let me go on. I'll save that for later. Um, we, one truth is we are better at diagnosing. Okay, so children who otherwise weren't being identified appropriately or being mislabeled are being appropriately identified. So that's part of the reason for the increase. Another, pro, another reason that um, that's happening is that this, the criteria for, being, for qualifying as an autism spectrum disorder person is broader now. So again, that explains some of the increase. But it doesn't explain the numbers greatly because then you would have um, changes lowering in the other developmental disabilities, but we don't. Um, so, so otherwise we had people who were going unlabeled before. We didn't know what they had. Now they're Asperger's, they're PDD-NOS, they're RETS. Um, and then otherwise they were also called mentally ill. Um, unfortunately, in the past, it was being called a mental illness, a psychotic illness. You had a psychotic child. And unfortunately, in the past also, they were saying that it was the mother's fault. The mother didn't love the child enough, and they would try to take the child away from the mother to give them what they thought they needed, which um, there was no research behind that. Okay, so right now... There is no known cause for autism, and right now there is no known cure. The good news is that we are getting there. We have some pockets of information. You may have heard a lot about the vaccine implications in autism. There is a, there's just a big old battle of opinions about whether that is really the case. Um, they do say that for some people it may be some of the vaccines. They also are starting to figure out, have done some research and found that children whose brain grow at a rapid rate in the first year to two years of life, you, their head circumference is super large, uh, abnormally large. They have too many neurotransmitters and the, um, they don't narrow down. So they have this like web of massive information instead of having a clear cut communication line between one piece of, the, of the, um, the brain to the other, they have this web. And so like my son is trying to get across the room, he's trying to navigate this web in his neurological system to try to, to accomplish what in his mind he's able to think if he's got the thought clear. Uh, another case is um, you see people with autism and they'll just say things. Boy, 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 go, boy, boy. They're stuck. Their brain is not, they're trying to get to the right word, but their brain is misfiring, miscommunicating. So imagine if you're trying to get that out and you um, find yourself trapped. So what happens um, often is that we, mis, we misinterpret their behavior. So we look at um, vaccines. There's um, also a possibility that the parents' DNA, there's some research that the parents' DNA is being damaged by toxins in the environment and then are actually creating damaged DNA in the, the child. 
Um, there's also, so we have the head circumference, we have the vaccines, we have the parents' DNA. We have some toxic environmental triggers. Um, so like in New Jersey, there's a um, high level of um, pollution. Then there's the mercury issue, mercury in the, blood, in, in the water systems um, <clears throat> that's leaching out through um, ignition systems and vehicles that are getting in there that's unintended. You know, we don't have enough answers. Are all these things... Do we know for sure any of those? No, we don't know for sure any of those. Are we getting closer? Yes, we're getting closer. And I'm optimistic that in the next 10 years we'll have a lot more information about, excuse me, about causes, and then that will lead to a cure. Um, cure, that's um, debatable. I'm sure you, you may have heard that the phrase cure is an issue. The phrase recovery has also become very common. Cure is considered different than recovery. Recovery is that we've gotten past it. Um, what I find interesting when I watch the documentaries on someone who has recovered is that it's usually a four, five, six, seven. The latest I've seen is an eight-year-old that's supposedly recovered. Let's think about what goes on neurologically and what the cognitive demands of, are of a child between four and eight. Now show me that child at 16. Show me that person at 26. Show me that person at 36. It's not that I don't want it to happen. I do. But I'm skeptical because I need to be. I don't want to go hunting down a path that's going to waste my family's time, energy, money um, on something that can't be done that will only frustrate my son and my family. Because in the meantime, while I'm trying to help William, imagine how he must feel, you know, if it's not really working. So in terms of recovery, what I ask you to do very humbly is to please monitor what you see in the media on the ages of these people that they are calling recovered and how do they have any level of assistance. And that's great if, you know, it's great, that's what I want to hear and then let's find out why, why they're able to do so well. And then what were their symptoms beforehand. Um, so be careful, be wary, but think positively because there will come a day and there are cases where they can say there is recovery. Um, through really good intervention, here we go. All right, through early intervention services that meet the needs of the child, early childhood services that are necessary, biomedical. Now, in biomedical, I'm talking about some treatments that are either vitamin supplements all the way to um, hyperbaric oxygen treatment um, therapy, center, therapy, where you actually go into this bubble with specialized, um, a certain level of oxygen and breathe in. Uh, so many for an hour every day or three times a day and you get this treatment. For some people they do see an improvement. So there are biomedical treatments. There's nutrition, obviously diet, like my son William cannot have food diets. He is allergic to corn. Any kind of corn syrup, today's like the worst day on earth for my family. Corn syrup is in every candy. Um, he's allergic to dairy, he's allergic to chocolate. Um, so anything with preservatives gives him trouble. If he's very, what, what our doctor said to us is Barb, what you need is a caveman diet. <laughs> I'm imagining, you know, digging out sweet potatoes out of the ground. Um, but basically that is what we eat. It's basic meat and vegetables and fruit. And as not, nothing's processed, even if it's in a can, just the salt and the water, that can be trouble for my son. Um, causes diarrhea. Actually, corn syrup will cause him to act like he is drunk. I'm not kidding you. You've never, I wish I could have brought video of it. Um, but really, truly, he acts like he's drunk. He's sloppy. He's joking. He's, I mean, he's laughing. He's playful. And he's all over the place. And then he literally passes out. 
Um, when he was really going through a difficult time with allergies, this is another thing, is that he appears to have hallucinations. Sometimes seizures cause what look like hallucinations, and you need to be aware of that. Um, don't be afraid. Just know that it means something's going wrong internally, and you want to seek medical help for that person. The other reason that can happen, the hallucinations, is because they're actually having a toxic reaction to something. William with corn syrup, when he was going through a really bad time, when all of uh, when we didn't realize all the allergies he had, at one point he was literally trying to climb the hinges of his bedroom door. The hinges. The door was closed. He was literally climbing the hinges. I mean, I never, it was like Spider-Man. Um, <clears throat> so you will see bizarre behavior because something is going wrong internally and it's miscuing. <clears throat> so you've got allergies. All right, intensive home-based therapies, what is recommended and has been, this is one solid piece of research we do have, is that intensive home-based one-on-one therapies that are directed around the person's strengths and needs for t at least 20 hours a week outside of school can, are one of the surest markers for improvement. And that's what we did at home with William and we continue to do. Speech therapy, occupational therapy, applied behavioral analysis is one of the methods that's been so researched for home so supports in home therapy. Um, then there's verbal behavior analysis, which is really working on building verbal skills. A lot of people with autism don't learn to talk until they're older. William, for the first time in six years, said mom this summer. And um, he, in his case, what he did was... Um, he had been all weekend going, mm, 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 and we were, you know, we'd go to John's baseball game. Everyone's like, hey, Will, what's going on? What are you doing there, buddy? And he's just going on and on. I'm like, wow, Will, I really like that you're making that new sound. You really seem like you're working on it. Well, he didn't want to lose it. So he would just focus, and then when he gets stuck, he goes, you could just see he's thinking, thinking, get it back, get it back, get it back. Well, then we went to visit my parents after John's baseball game, and he's sitting on the couch just clapping, literally came to life. Mom, 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 freak it out. I'm saying mom, I'm saying mom. Comes galloping over. Mom, 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 mom. And we were all beside ourselves. My mind, he actually was skipping right over to my mother, and she's like, you're saying mom, you're saying mom, you're saying mom. So he got to my mom, and he took this big hug, and he was looking at me like, I did it, I did it, I did it. He's so excited, and then he lost it. And then he's like, um, 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 and then he ran back to the couch where he had been sitting and started all over again, like, that's where I figured it out, so I'm going to do it again. Um, mom, 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 and repeated the same cycle. So imagine what must be going on neurologically, all that energy it took to get to it and all that body movement that it took to organize, to get it out, to repeat it, and then how it got lost by my mother's affection and embrace for him, even though he wanted it. It was like, oh, you broke the cycle, and then he had to go back. So there's a lot of pieces involved um, that we don't realize that are so subtle that we have to get care be careful to pay attention to. So um, verbal behavior analysis has been, a lot of people have had very much success. It's, um, it is pretty common for a 13, 14, 15-year-old to learn to talk um, because something happens in their development that if you, with the right supports, 
Um, sometimes it do, it, they do improve in their language development. And then there's RDI therapy, which is Relationship Development Intervention Therapy um, by Stephen Gutstein in um, Texas. And you can Google search that. They have a nice website to give you more information about that. Another great program, very founded on the person. The, um, both RDI and DIR floor time therapy, so is the CERTS model. Those three, I probably should put them together on my list. Those three are very affect-based. We're going to take the child's affect because affect leads to learning. If you're mad, you're going to learn. You're motivated. If you're happy, you're going to learn. You're motivated. Affect motivates learning. So... You want to work with the affect they have so they meet the child at the affect they have and they build on that affect and they broaden it. So when, when for instance, my Mike, my, Will's therapist Mike, who used to, Will would scream because he would turn the video off and that took about six months for that to stop. I mean, totally be gone. Now Mike comes over and Will comes clapping over to him and he gives him the the shoulder butt like come on let's wrestle that's their new that's his new thing and Mike can say to him what do you want to do today and they go and pick off of a visual system what do you feel like doing and Will he'll say well if Will doesn't make a choice which often he doesn't um, Will Mike will hold up two pictures well do you want to rollerblade or do you want to play soccer and then William will touch the one he wants or Will will say no you know, or see you later, alligator. That's when he really thinks he's funny. But Mike is building off of those skills. When Mike first started with Will, they went to pour orange juice. I was dismayed. I'm like, oh, my God, I never let Will pour. Um, that's another thing. I'm so afraid of how much work it'll be because I'm already overworked. I don't want to do any more. To have someone come in the house and say, don't worry, we'll clean it up. Well, there was orange juice over all over my kitchen floor, and I... He said, Mom, Mrs. Tobias, just go in the other room. I'm like, okay, I'm going. So I went in the uh, other room, and I picked up the phone, and I closed the door, and I talked to a friend. I'm like, I have to keep busy. I can't stand it. There's orange juice all over my floor, and I've never done this before. And um, so what they did was I'd go and check. I said, how's it going? And he said, don't worry. You know, Will's a little, a little overwhelmed with having to clean up orange juice, but we're taking our breaks. We come in. We wipe a little bit, and then we take a little break. Go outside, come back in, took an entire hour. But William cleaned up the orange juice. But Mike didn't make it like you made a mistake, you were wrong, we've got to fix it now. He's like, oh, we spilled orange juice, okay, we're going to clean it up. Oh, you need a break? Okay, seems like you need a break, let's go take a break. And then we'll come back and clean it up some more. He just hangs in there with Will, stays at Will's level, and then keeps add, adding on. So scaffolding, so William makes the progress. And William to this day, now William can pour his own his own drink. Um, and then there's discrete trial, which is um, like a generic form of um, ABA, uh, where you teach things in a very controlled setting and you start to build on it. So like William, if I want him to care, um, bring his backpack in the house from the bus, I would start by um, having him just bring it in the door. I would carry it all the way to the door, and then he just has to bring it in the door. And then I just take it off the bus, he has to bring it from the bus. You, so you backward chain, you build on the skill. You do one piece at a time. And uh, teach is a, um, a nonverbal skill learning, kind of um, independent. We're, so, for instance, teaching Will to feed the dog, that would be a teach, what I would use a teach task for. We break down the task so you would learn it without verbal cues about how to do it. And if, you have, if anyone's interested in any more of these, um, any more information about these methods, I'd be happy to share some information I have at the office.
<clears throat> and then there's alternative treatments. And one of the problems with um, a disability like autism is that because there are no sure answers, there's a lot of treatments out there, and many of them are working for some families, and what works for one family doesn't necessarily work for another family. So what we always tell people, and what I have found personally, is that I investigate it and I see if it's the right fit for my child. For instance, my son William did not do well with ABA alone. He needed a DIR, um, RDI base with ABA inside it. That works for him. For other families, they've had tremendous success with ABA um, as it stands uh, on its own. And then there's these other forms of communication. We'll use as a form of facilitated communication, but I like to call it we facilitate his communication. So we're scaffolding to help him communicate. And you'll see, I'll show you samples in a little bit. Okay, so what are the best outcomes for a person with autism? We know early intervention, intensive home program, biomedical interventions often work, gastrointestinal health, okay, that was another piece I forgot to tell you. What are the problems with um, antibiotics? A lot of our kids who have autism also had a lot of antibiotics as infants. And what what they have found that happens with a lot of antibiotics is it changes the probiotics in the lower intestines and it causes um, holes, what they call holes, in the intestines that are larger than normal. So toxins have started to get into the bloodstream and causes the um, toxic damage to the brain. So gastrointestinal is, is really a big piece of the issue, is, is a piece of the puzzle as well. Um, we want to stop seizures. The goal is zero seizures. Always, that's the rule with seizures, zero seizures. Um, you need collaboration by all service providers, and that means everyone who is working with the child, interacting with the child. You do need to teach social skills along with the basics because our kids are so busy they either learn one piece or they learn a wide thing, but they don't learn the specifics. So there's one extreme or the other. They may pick up a part of it, but not the whole piece of um, what they mean to need to learn. So social skills can be really tricky because it's so fast and there's so much that changes in an interaction. There's nonverbal cues, there's tone of voice, there's verbal, there's wording, there's questions, there's answers. So we've got pragmatics down to specifics and that can be very difficult to navigate. There are children, people who are on the spectrum who actually do homeschooling by computer. They go to school online and it's easier for them. They can learn faster because they don't have as much to navigate socially. Um, and then they get their social skills in other, in other ways. Um, okay, so also we need to work on affect. Do we have that affect teaching in our curriculum? That's often considered like an extra, but it really needs to be there because then when our, our children are adults, do they have the tools to handle what they need in their affect system? You know, what do I do when I'm angry? What do I do when they say I have to wait in line? How do I handle this feeling? We need to teach them those tools as well, and it does need to be very literal. And uh, a person-centered curriculum where we're looking at the person, what are their skills, what are their weaknesses, what is, what is the life goal for this person, and how do we reach that life goal. And treat the person as a whole, complete. Okay, so we're always going to be val validating the individual. So we're planning for life after school. <clears throat> Um, this was also one of those key moments in my um, journey 
where I realized this was the answer for me. All of these goals we were working on in, with the school, and everyone was working so hard, but were they really important? I didn't know what was important, because everything seemed important, and yet nothing seemed important enough. And then I realized I'm really working towards his life after school. He'll only be in school up till his 22nd birthday. And then he's got to live to 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80s, right? All those years, how is he going to live his life? What I really want to do is plan for those years when school's over. So those, that's how I plan my goals for him. And that might be something that you find helpful in dealing with families. So what does that include? Oops. That includes hobbies, self-care, what do you do in your pastime? Where do you socialize? And people who have the greatest success with disabilities are people who are able to stay in their own communities, not being ex excluded. Sheltered might be necessary, like William, he needs sheltering, but um, he needs to be in his own community to be successful. All right, and then you probably know this, a free and appropriate public education is necessary and least restrictive environment. That's one of the biggest battling points that um, parents have with schools is what is, and for themselves, for their child, is what is considered least restrictive environment. Least restrictive environment depends on the needs of the child. William, when he was younger, least restrictive environment would have been a mainstream classroom with an aide and some assistance. But now, a self-contained classroom in a mainstream school where there's interaction with typical peers that is guided and facilitated, that is the least restrictive environment for William. So it depends on the child. It depends on how they're functioning. Another really exciting piece that has just happened, and due, um, thanks to our um, legislative um, staff, Chris Kennedy, and um, his work with um, many people, but especially Susan Garrett and um, Representative Patty Bullock, you know, one thing I have found is that politics is really important, <laughs> and I didn't realize how important it was um, um, until all the issues with autism have come up in providing a good educational system. But the goal, um, what, we've, what they've done is started a, a new law that beginning January 1st, 2008, there are seven areas for consideration on every IEP for a child with a, a student with autism spectrum disorders. And these are areas that need to be considered. Verbal and non-verbal communication needs. And that gets down to what devices are even being used. Social interaction skills. Um, the, a child's unusual responses to sens sensory experiences the resistiveness that a, a student might have to changes in routines, uh, and um, repetitive behaviors and stereotypical movements like Will has, and positive behavioral interventions. It, you, uh, there's actually a, a state-funded agency, Positive Behavioral Supports Intervention System, that um, will come out to school districts and train people on how to provide positive behavioral supports when you have problem behaviors instead of letting it get negative and how you go in a positive direction. All right, and then any other needs um, for the general curriculum so that the child has access to general education. So my son William is able to do some gen ed things, but in an adapted way. So this is crucial as a parent and as an, a past educator because these seven areas help me guide what's critical for the students with ASD on the IEP, which is a legal document contract. Okay, so when we look at a classroom setting, children on the spectrum, you can look at who is um, children on the autism spectrum, where are they spending? Most of them are in special ed classes. Some 20% are in all regular ed. 
and some have ha a small percentage have, um, you know, are half and half. The point here is that is this really a good set? Is this really where we want them to be? Do they need to be there? Do they need to be um, as self-contained? In my case, for William, um, it's the right place. It's the right fit. The school has done an ex the district and school staff have done an excellent job, and we've done a good job of figuring out where, what Will's needs are. But that isn't the isn't the case in every school district. So our life goal as a family and for William and for John is to learn, work, live, recreate, and socialize in the community. And it's really important to remember that, again, we're looking at past the age of, of the school age, and we're preparing him for the day that we're gone. This is what a, a family with a child with special needs has to look at, is how I'm racing the clock that William will be as independent and as happy and healthy as he can be before I die. I know Brian Rubin, who's an attorney with a, an adult son with autism, says um, he needs to leave just, live just one minute longer than his son because he can't stand the thought of what, who would take care of his son when they're gone. And that is a real fear and a reality we, we live with. And, you know, Will's cute now, but what are we going to do when he's, you know, big, all grown up? Not everyone will think he's so cute. Um, so we need it to be person-centered. We want to look across the lifespan. We need to look at their hobbies, their strengths, and their areas of enjoyment. We want to build on their skills. Think of something you're not good at. Imagine having to practice that every single day. It would really make you unravel and certainly make you uncomfortable. So we want to build on their strengths and we want to scaffold in those weaknesses and build them if we can. But mostly we want to build on those strengths. Um, common challenging behaviors in autism, social issues, if they don't navigate the, the, con the contextual clues of a social environment. Communication and language issues, those are huge. Even a person who is very verbal in autism uh, or Asperger's can have a lot of communication challenges where they're not reading this, the situation. So there's a young man uh, who's wonderful. He calls in every once in a while to say hello at the office who lives independently. He's high, uh, I don't know if he has Asperger's or high-functioning autism. I'm not sure. I think it's Asperger's. But anyway, he will call in and he'll say, how are you today? And I'll say, I'm fine. How are you? And he'll say, I'm great. What's going on? And so then I'll tell him. And then I'll say, well, what's going on with you? And he'll say, I'm doing great. I'm at work and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And then you can tell. I'll ask one question too many or one question that he's not sure the answer. And he'll start the conversation all over again. So it doesn't mean that he's not understanding me. It means he doesn't know how to answer me. Okay, so we always want to be careful about, are we judging their cognition unfairly? Do we have enough information to make a judgment about what's really going on internally versus output? So always think about input, how are they taking it in, processing, and how are they outputting? So there's three areas you want to be paying attention to always because they defy what we consider logical. All right, restricted interests. William always loved the little Playmobil people, and everyone had a name and who they were, and, oh, she had to go in that car, only that car, or he'd get upset. And so you have a lot of different interests. Um, trains are really common as a repetitive toy. Insistence on sameness. Sensory issues, I, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this page. I just want to make sure that you're aware that there, all of these are areas that can be troublesome. 
and not everyone will have all of them, but you may see them. Observable markers, you're going to have the self-injurious behavior. Sometimes there's biting of themselves um, or head banging. That could be because of seizures. There's actually pain in their head or they can't feel it and they're trying to get enough input to feel themselves. Um, there was one person, a young man with autism, who um, can't talk very well, so he types. And he says that his challenge every day is trying to be connected to his body and that he feels that his brain, his head, is all of him and his body does not belong to him. It's a stranger to him and that it's his enemy. So it sends him clapping and pacing back and forth and rocking, but it's not what he wants to do. It's what he's, he's trying to do something else, but his body is his enemy. And I thought that was really fascinating to hear from a person with autism, how they feel that. So we don't know really why all these behaviors are there. Sensory processing. One thing you'll hear in a well-evaluated system for a child is these seven areas of sensory input. Sensory, and are the, is the person hyposensitive or under-responsive or hypersensitive? So William is hypersensitive visually. So he has trouble looking at you directly. He is hyposensitive tactilely. He can't feel the light touch. Drives him crazy. He needs deep input. So when you hug him, it's a bear hug. And that feels good to him. Not a gentle hug. Um, you have to give him, like even when I go to like touch his hair, I have to give him like a deep massage with my finger so he can feel it. Um, auditorily, you may have hyper or hypo. And then there's two other areas of senses that often go overlooked but are so important, especially with a person with um, disabilities or whose um, sensory processing is a, a, a impacted. That would be proprioceptive. Where is my body in space? So that's why Will looks for deep input. He is barreling in, oh, give me as much as you can. He loves to wrestle. Um, he actually, another good explanation about people with autism, how they might do something that seems strange, but actually there's a very meaningful and logical purpose to it. Uh, John had, in seventh grade, John started wrestling with his school. So William and I would go to the wrestling meets. Well, Will was watching and watching, and one day he ran right out onto the mat in the middle of a big meet, in the middle of some wrestling. It wasn't John wrestling. John was up in the bleachers. And I thought, oh, John's at that stage. He's going to die of embarrassment. Because I'm out there running after William, and I'm like, William, come on. And he would not. He'd look back to see if I was coming. He just kept going, kept going, till he literally ran to the far corner of the gym where he had no place else to go. And I said, William, we need to go sit down. And he wouldn't come and wouldn't come. And I said, are you trying to tell me that you want to wrestle? Yes or no? And he touched my hand, yes, and then took it and walked right back to the bleachers and sat down. He was trying to tell me, I want to wrestle too. He hasn't been given the means to say that, so he had to show it. So a lot of behaviors can be misunderstood. So we have to spend that time to check in to get that information. So guess what we did? He didn't join the wrestling team because there's no way he could do that. I would let him. But we started wrestling club at home. So we made a wrestling icon symbol that he can ask. 
he wants to wrestle, and he wrestles with Mike, with his dad, and with John, and any of John's friends he can ask who want to, any of the boys. That it's just a guy thing, it's not a girl thing, because I don't want him to teach to be that physical with women, because that could get him in trouble when he's an adult. You always have to be thinking across the lifespan. If it's cute now, will it be cute at 36? If it's not going to be cute at 36, is it going to be legal at 36? If it's not going to be legal at 36, it's not okay now. We have to prepare for that. Because it takes people with autism sometimes a very long time to learn it um, uh, in, in the whole gamut. So proprioceptively, Will needed that input. So we wrestle with him, and that provides him um, in, uh, wrestling input. We actually got the big wrestling belt from Walmart, and he's the champ, and Mike gave him names, and he'd pick which name he was that day. Oh, so funny. And then there's vestibular input, and that's movement. Where are you going in space? Your line in space. So that's a swinging, rocking movement that you'll see. William definitely is hyposensitive um, vestibularly. He's always in movement. He's claps. He's always looking for vi vibration and input in his vestibular system, which is connected, very closely connected to your ears. Again, you, a lot of people with autism have this problem with vestibular. A lot of people with autism also had ear infections and had antibiotics, and all of those anatomically are right near each other. Okay. So we need to create a circle of support. We need to recognize that where are we in the circle of support of the person with autism? What role do we play? And we want to find out if we don't know. And how do we do that? What does that look like? All the way down to police and paramedics. Um, for a safety issue, you have to, um, one of the things we did was let our police department know um, that Will has special needs and they obviously know that from the paramedics, but there's a special form a family can fill out for a person with a disability and with, or with autism. It's, you fill out all this information and it's on their computer system. So if there's an emergency, even in our neighborhood, on their computer screen, the police and fire department will come up. Will Tobias lives at 1202 Monarch Lane, has autism, is nonverbal, may be in the area. They always know if there's an emergency, he may be around, so it's red flagged. Um, and so the last time we called the paramedics, they came and they're all saying, you know, they, they were so proud they knew everything they needed to know about Will. So, and I was looking at them like, what is going on? It was all so surreal to me because I was so worried. But it was great. It was very exciting. So what, I, what we work from is a collaborative model. As a parent and as a professional working with children with special needs, speak the unspeakable. Ask the question. It's, you know, just do it kindly. It's worth it. It's worth it on my part as a parent. It's worth it on everyone's part. And list the help of others. Find other people who are the experts. Um, ASI, that's our job. We are the link to help you find the experts for the families and people working with people on the spectrum. And as a parent, as a teacher, uh, um, you want to be the, person, the child's voice. You have to say, so when William went out on the, in the mat, on the mat, could that have been a problem? Yeah, but we figured it out, and I was able to advocate for Will through that interaction. I find the experts, be persistent, that's for sure, and be an equal team member. Being equal does not always mean the same. So sometimes when I'm an equal team member, I'm really the one taking notes and taking direction. Sometimes as an equal team member, I'm the one running the meeting. Depends on what's going on and where we're at and what we're trying to troubleshoot and plan for. <clears throat> and just remember, parents, you know, 
we, as a, as a professional, you work with your, the child for so long, one school year, two school years, how many hours a day. Um, maybe you see them one time. It's a one-time visit as a nurse. But as a parent, we're with that child for a lifetime. So we're planning for a lifetime. Our investment is a million times more than anybody else's investment. And so sometimes you have to forgive the parent for their impassioned energy that may come out of um, some interactions. And be sure to validate for the family what's going on. Okay, and remember that leadership is not stagnant, it is fluid. And that, so you're always navigating the leadership role. It doesn't mean you're always in charge and what's happening. And also bees are drawn to honey. It's always better to be positive because everyone means well. We are so fortunate, all the people who have helped us with William um, and helped our family be a family. All right, so you want to plan for a lifetime of goals. IEP goals should also reflect that with the seven areas. In a collaborative model, you are always looking at plan, do, study, act. We call it a PDSA. That's the tool that we use, plan, do, study, act, and we're always reevaluating. This is that fluid model. And this is a great plan to use when you're working with a child and a team. It helps with communication. You come together. Well, let's, let's make a plan. Here's the plan. Who's going to do it? Going to do it. Who's do, then you go ahead and do it. Then you study it. How to work. Act, take action again. Go back to the drawing board. Plan, do, study, act. You keep revolving. And that's a very meaningful way to take evidence-based data and evidence-based work and results. Okay, and this is just a sample, and I apologize that the text is so poor. Uh, but this is a sample of a meeting from uh, minutes from a meeting, and it's not all of it, but it's a good start of it. Is what are his strengths? What are the, what are the goals as a family that we have? Our wishes for Will. We identified as a team what we saw Will's strengths. We identified as a team Will's growth. What improvements has Will's, Will made in the last six months? And what does Will seem to be seeking? What does Will want? And what are we going to work towards? And based on those three areas, that's when we made our plan of what we were all going to work on as a team. And we divided and conquered different specialties, work with different, um, in different areas. Okay, behavior is such a big issue in autism. Remember, when behavior, you always think of the ABCs. The antecedent, what went on before the behavior. B, the behavior itself, what was the problem behavior. And C, the consequences. What are the consequences of the behavior? And the rule of thumb is observe, observe, observe. Okay, evidence-based data. So what happened with William? Okay, let me see how I can do this. Here we go. Uh, with William, we did a... A study. These were some problem behaviors. He was moaning and multiple times in class during the day during non-preferred activities. Oh, he was doing that. It was to the point of a problem. Grunting, lack of visual attending when he didn't want to do something. Attempting to leave. Okay. Uh, running away. Okay, ten or more times a day. You know what? We were in an IP meeting and the teacher announced he had run. He was running sixty times a day out of the room. Okay, hello. He had a one-on-one -on -one aid. Where was she? How could he get out of the room 60 times a day? That's an important piece, but we took, everyone took data so it would be able to figure it out. Well, the aide was actually being asked to do other responsibilities, so that was one of the problems. Well, she was there to keep, well, he's a fleer. He's a flight risk, they call him. Um, he's a lever. He'll run. And so he's one of the reasons he needs to have one-on-one aid. And aggressive behavior, grabbing, biting. Um, <clears throat> and what was happening was he, every time Will was quiet, so they took data, they observed, 
and um, they took data. What they found out was every time Will was quiet, nobody was interacting with him. Every time he acted out, he got attention. So he was getting negative attention, and negative attention is better than no attention. So he, so they changed that. So every time he was quiet, he was getting a lot of attention. Every time he was doing what he should be, he got a lot of attention. So all, com- all behavior is communication. It's not necessarily misbehaving. That's what you want to be careful about is not jumping to that. I just went back a little bit. Child is trying to tell us something, and what you want to do is a functional behavior analysis. Dr. Luke Sai does a great job. Um, he has a book called Taking the Mystery Out of Medications, ironically, and uh, the one of the points is you have to figure out is it an environmental issue that is causing the behavior or is it actually a neurological issue that requires medication, okay? It's a great book. All right, so here's what we did for William because, you know, he gets so excited. He's moving. He can't get anything done because he's moving too much. He's so excited. So this is what Susan Norwell, Will's augmentative communication reading and writing teacher, therapist who we see outside of school, um, made for him. And we have that on his, bo- on his, in front of him in his workspace while he was working with her. And whenever he got really excited, we would go and point to it. I have a lot of feelings. I know you have a lot of feelings. Uh, you can think with your, you with your words. You can think with your words, but not your body. You need to do calm work. So we validated you have a lot of feelings, and that's okay. But you can have those feelings and still have a calm body. And you can think to yourself, I am so proud because I have a lot of words. So we helped give him a tool, and that tool helped ease the dysregulation of all the emotions he was having. So we validated the emotions. We gave him a tool and a guide for how to more appropriately handle those emotions and move on. Okay, so in Dr. Luxai's book, here is a, a flow chart. You have a list of behaviors and emotions of concern, like I showed you in Will's case. So you do a functional behavior analysis. That's data taking. And then are the behaviors or emotions learned or maladaptive? So environmentally or purposefully for the child. If they're yes, then you're going to go to non-medical interventions. And you're going to come up with strategies in the classroom, in the home, to work on these behaviors like we did with William. If they are not based on a learned um, case or maladaptive, then you're going to look at some other issues the emotional needs, um, the, cognitive, the, mental, the cognitive needs of the child, and do they need medication. So for Will's dysregulation, was that an ADHD thing, or was it because of his autism? And it turned out in his case it was due to the autism, so he did not need medication for that. So the basis of a functional behavior analysis, I'm not going to go into details, but you want to interview all the people involved to get appropriate facts about the problem behavior. You're going to look at direct observation, the antecedents, the behavior, and the consequences. You take data based on what works best for the situation. And then you try tweaking that. You try different things and see if the behavior changes. You try changing one thing at a time, systematic manipulations, and then you assess the effectiveness of the intervention, and you keep cycling through that as needed until you get to, um, uh, you know, uh, a decrease in the behavior. Okay. There are nine adaptions to teaching or to instruction, and this is based on work at the Indiana University in Bloomington. You can change the size of the task. Um, Gail, this is, I have, it's not in your handouts. I have a separate handout for you. Did you put those out? Are they, are they already on your chair? Oh, they are. Okay, I'm sorry. So you can look at the size of the task. William does great on the first three tasks, always, 100%. And then after that, he either doesn't do well at all or he stops working. 
So in our case, we know three is good, so we're working at getting Will to hang in for four and do well. So you can change the size of the tax. You can change the time. The time of day that you do it, the amount of time that your person works on it. Some kids do better in the morning. Some kids do better in the, in the afternoon, depending on what the task is. But you could also change the time allowment that they have. Extend the time they have to do the task. In Will's case, um, up here, there's a, an album of where we're just working on Will's feelings. And it's a book about Will and his family. Well, he types in the words on a label maker. And just one page can take us an entire week to do, just so you have a sense of how much we adapt for him. So these are samples of his work here, and you can see, if you would like to afterwards, you can come take a look, and you'll see that some of these tasks, they're meaningful, and he's getting to the content, but they're severely adapted and ordered for him to succeed and learn. Okay, so the level of support, how much is one-on-one assistance there, or um, what other kind of assistance is, is there? Uh, kind of input, the difficulty of the task, what's expected for output. So for Will, he can't talk, he can't write, so we have to give him pictures and words that he chooses from. Okay? So, and then participation, what kind of participation is expected? So for William, in the morning, they have their, ooh, oh no. Let's just do that. Okay. So for William, um, he wants to participate in their classroom's morning meeting, but he can't verbalize. And they're working on social skills of what did you do last night, what did you eat for dinner, what was something fun you did, what time did you go to bed. Well, the kids ask him that, and he has a talking device that every morning Will has to, on a little sheet with a, a dot marker, dot the things that he did that the night before that would answer those questions. And then my husband uses a recording device, which is called a step-by-step -step talker, sequencer, and he answers each question. And then when Will goes to class, Alec will ask him, what did you eat for dinner? Will presses the button because that's going to be the first answer. That's the first question to be answered. And it'll say, I ate spaghetti. You know, what did you do last night? I blank, blank, blank. So he presses it. So Will knows the sequence because he just doesn't have the output capability with his voice. We can give him something that can provide output. So we adapt so he can succeed. So he can still be communicating and interacting, but with alternatives to help him. And alternate goals. In Will's case, I'm not really worried about if he um, knows all the 50 states. I need to know if he knows where he lives where his community is, and outside of his community, who we should be interacting with. For some children, that would be an appropriate goal. For William, it's different. Or you can have a completely substitute curriculum, depending on the level of needs of the child. But remember, we always want to assume competence. We can't say the child can't do it or is not capable of it if we haven't provided them the opportunity to learn the task. Okay. So... Will was in a classroom where they said he can't do math. He's not ready. We're still on shapes, sorting shapes and identifying shapes. And we said, but we haven't really tried it, so let's just try it. So everyone agreed, okay, let's try it. So we decided how we were going to adapt it. He would have flashcards, and then he would have numbers to choose from for the answer. So 4 plus 4 is what? And he'd have the, um, a little post-it that said 4, um, 8, 12. And then what we found was we'd hold up the answer, we'd hold up the choice, so it was like a multiple choice question, and he would either touch or pull off the post of the right answer. But what we found out is that he can multiply and divide. 
and add and subtract. But he hasn't been given the opportunity to do it, so we didn't know. So be careful. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Okay. All right, so here's another example. This is one where they had they asked the question and they pointed to the answer just by the words in the top of the chart. They did it as a group, and you can see the information put on there pointed to correct answer with no prompt for the first one. So these are the levels of support you can give. Here's another example. You can't see very well, but those are actually little pieces of paper like flashcards that will have to choose the right answer and put it to complete the sentence. So he can't write, but he can read. So the, the, having the piece of paper can help him. Here's while horseback riding. It takes five people to coordinate and collaborate in order for Will to ride a horse. But he's now in his fourth year of lessons. So with modifications, there's a lot you can do. All right, so again, affect, accessibility, and adaptations lead to success. And remember, whether the child is limited verbal or nonverbal, there are types of altering of communication that you can do to provide this person an opportunity for output. We always have to remember of how we are giving them a voice. Are we giving them the tools to ask questions, to answer questions, and to address issues? This is just one form of communication. These are basics. Will can answer, address just about anything with these basics. This is a safety one when we're out in the community. And this is for him to choose, give his menu at um, Starbucks, McDonald's. And this is the conga line. This is Buddy Baseball. These are two of his volunteers who decided to um, do a conga line behind him. And you can't really see in this picture, but William is thrilled. He typed to me after that that it was the first time he was a leader. And um, so... With assistance, maybe we redefine levels of participation and happiness and success. My husband wants you to know that he was scared to death that Will would get hurt. And Will's clapping, not worried at all. <laughs> I keep telling my mom, if he dies tubing, at least he dies happy. <laughs> all right, there's the family kayaking. And the dog who hates the water but doesn't want to be left alone. And there's Will. That's Will happy and healthy today. So as a family and as a person working with a child with um, autism, remember, you may only be one person, but to one person, you may mean the world. You may be their voice. You may be their advocate. You may be their connection to all that they wish for and want. So thank you very much for your interest, and I'd be happy to answer questions. Oh, you're also welcome to come up here and take a look at samples of what he did. I just opened his folder last night from school. I'm like, oh, these are great samples to bring in. Well, I thank everyone for coming, and if you have questions, you can come on up as well um, and ask Barb um, in person if you want. But this is a little token from Moraine Valley, Barb. Oh, uh, thank you for all oh, your help goodness. and good preparation. Thank and so once again, we thank you so much for Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.